Welcome to the Doing Epic Stuff podcast with your host, Mike Drohan. Together, we'll explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Who do I want to become? Because if you're going to do something you've never done before, you kind of have to become somebody you've never been before. That's internationally recognized speaker and author Bobby Cappuccio. Bobby has spent the last 20 plus years pushing for a health and fitness training industry paradigm shift from a solely external goal-oriented approach to a more holistic approach focused upon behavior change. In essence, more gains through them brains. To state that Bobby is coming from a place of experience is a major understatement. Pause. Before I get too deep into this episode, I'm going to deliver the following proviso. It really deserves to be listened to more than once. The sheer breadth of insight provided by Bobby is going to have you pausing and rewinding. But just because you're able to produce a result for yourself doesn't mean you're able to teach it, or it doesn't necessarily mean that you are able to produce that result because of what you know. Sometimes there are other factors and you produce that result in spite of what you know. I did warn you in advance. It could be argued that as part of the human condition that we form beliefs based upon our interpretations of things that have happened to us. The trauma and physical disadvantages which Bobby had bestowed upon him at birth, orphan, Tourette's syndrome, physical deformities, horrendous abuse. He had every reason to believe his life was shit and that was what it would amount to. Rather than end up in the bottom of a bottle, Bobby found a way to create his own Michelangelo's David, systematically carving away his perceived constraints to uncover an innate ability to bring out the epic in others through fitness training, a realization which has led him to the very top of the health and fitness industry. Join Bobby and I as we explore behavior change, contribution as a vehicle for discovering our purpose, and the fickle nature of self-beliefs in this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. Uh, Bobby, thank you so much for participating in the Doing Epic Stuff podcast today. Uh, What time is it in wherever you are, Bobby? I am in San Diego. It is six o'clock in the evening. Okay, lovely. Lovely and bright for six o'clock. It's at the moment at 4 p.m. It's pitch black in Melbourne, Australia. It's the, it's the whole daylight savings time thing. And, you know, yeah, it's like you definitely save a lot on candles this time of year, as was the intention <laughs> of Benjamin Franklin. I'm just going to jump into it. I'd be interested to know what is a day in the life of Bobby Capuccio like at the moment, given that you are such a uh, busy professional power force doing your training and your coaching and you've got online courses and all this jazz what is how do you pull all that together and still manage to to live a a semi-normal life i feel like i say this with greater frequency but get ready for me to massively disappoint you this is it this is like lately a day in the life of bobby capuccio like ever since the almost the beginning of 2020 i sit in front of zoom for 10 different reasons all day Like I literally started in front of Zoom seven o'clock in the morning. I've been chatting to people and yeah, it's after you, it's going to be like about 7 p.m. I think, and I'm just going to shut it down. 
Because after mm. 12 hours, like, I don't even want to look at my face. Well, I don't even want to look at my face by 8 o'clock in the morning. But I, I feel sorry for the people in the meetings. But by 7 o'clock, I'm absolutely sick of seeing myself and others. But not you. You're the exception. <laughs> Thanks, Bobby. I, it's it's a lot to be on a, on Zoom that long. I, you get sort of weirdly, I feel sort of, especially when I was doing it professionally, when I was gainfully employed, <laughs> Uh spending that much time, you kind of feel a little bit disassociated because it's it's only a 2D environment, but you're having these 3D conversations. I just felt like it gets weird after a few hours. Well, I think anything in the working world does get weird after a few hours um, if you're doing it somewhat right. Um, you know, I, it, it's weird because I'm psychologically unemployable, but you know, here I am. Nice. Um, and I think disassociated is a really good word for it, actually. <laughs> good, good. Uh, Bobby, I'd like to start with riffing on some exercise type stuff. Uh, obviously, you've got a very extensive or had an extensive career in the fitness industry, which has taken you to all sorts of interesting places. Uh, you've worked in, in like the highest levels of some of the most world-renowned uh, PT and fitness um, entities, I guess you could say, which must have been quite an incredible experience. Um, yeah, I'm just going to talk about two things with you. One is exercise and one is contribution. So I think I want to unpack exercise first. And I think I'm going to reel off a little line that's on your website first. It says, Bobby discovered that by redirecting his focus to exercise, he could affect positive change in not only his life, but in the lives of the people he in turn trained. In helping others, he was in fact helping himself. So there's kind of two elements to that as I, as I think about that. One is the exercise itself. It's doing good things for you. you. You got into exercise, you pursued it, and you got all these positive benefits from it. So I want to talk about that first. And then we can look at the contribution side of things. How is exercise and you helping to train people being a conduit to, in fact, helping yourself? We'll, we'll come to that second. So I guess first up, we know it's good for us. Exercise is healthy. Um, but for you, Bobby, I feel it's been truly transformational in, in many different ways. So can you maybe tell me about how exercise has been transformational for you and even to the extent of maybe even having saved your life? You know, I don't even know where exactly to start. I don't think I was looking for exercise per se. I was always interested in exercise, um, like because we were talking before we started this podcast. I just got back from, you know, a major dental surgery yesterday. And it was because, you know, for the first 17 years of my life, my cranial structure was dis deformed and disfigured. And then even after multiple surgeries to fix that, I still had some skeletal issues that developed into serious dental problems that so still I'm dealing with this stuff today as mm. early as yesterday, you know, I spent like three hours in surgery. And when you're growing up living, well, in my neighborhood, living in any neighborhood and you are disfigured and you've got Tourette's um, as much fun as you might be at dinner parties uh, later on in life, it, it brings a lot of attention to you and it's negative attention. And I was looking for a form of escapism. So I always looked at like beautiful people 
who had like these great physiques, these great faces. And, you know, I fucking hated them. No, I'm just, <laughs> I was always, <laughs> I, I was always in awe and fascinated by them. So there was always that interest, but with exercise, I was looking for a place that I could focus on something that didn't involve other people. And I was trying to not develop my body so I could become noticed. I was trying to actually become more inconspicuous, just basically put my head down and get into something that wasn't dangerous. Um, There was a lot of things that I was doing around the time that I got into exercise that I had no business doing. And there there was not a very positive future in it. Um, And I was just hanging out with people where if they kept doing what they were doing, it would have led to precarious or unfortunate circumstances. Mm -hmm. So I joined the Y on Coney Island Avenue and (laughs) I walked into this little shitty gym where in the summer, the walls would sweat and the paint would peel. Now I'm looking back and I'm like, God, this place was beautiful. (laughs) And it looked like a bunch of furniture with weight stacks attached to it. And I had no idea like what I was doing. So I I, I looked, you know, I kind of did what, everybody does, or a lot of people do, not everybody. I looked around the gym to try to find if somebody who was the epitome of me of what, if I thought it was possible, I would strive to look like. And he was there guy by the name of Dougie. His name actually came up on Facebook the other day. Uh, they were looking for him and uh, not for, no, I mean, not for any <laughs> unscrupulous reason. People remember him. It's like, well, whatever happened to Dougie? And Dougie was just like massive. And he had this like V-shaped body and this tan and veins, you know, everywhere. Yeah. He just, he just looked like great hair. I was like, wow. He had absolutely no legs whatsoever, but he just wore like long trainer pants all the time. And I just looked at him. I was like, that guy, that guy could probably help me. The problem is, you know, when you meet a guy who's that successful in a given area of their life, they're usually keen to help other people. But just because you're able to produce a result for yourself doesn't mean you're able to teach it, or it doesn't necessarily mean that you were able to produce that result because of what you know. Sometimes there are other factors and you produce that result in spite of what you know. That's a whole different podcast. So Dougie, my first day in the gym, took me through his routine, (laughs) which was inappropriate for a lot of reasons. And I remember it was like, on a Monday, I think it was a Monday. Cause in my mind, you start every program on a Monday. So let's just say Monday. And he, he even said like, the next time I came to the gym, he's like, take a day off, take a day off. I, I need like six weeks off. And he's like, take a day off, come back in and I'll work with you again. I'm here during these hours. So he kind of worked there. I'm, I'm going to say that loosely got paid to make sure nobody died. Um, but it wasn't like a traditional structured trainer like position, but I remember I had rung him at the office and I told him a couple of days later that I was going to break my promise. I wasn't going to come to the gym and he got quite upset. He's like, you know, you you told me you would, we had an appointment. You made a commitment as like, no, you don't understand. It's like, like I'm on the toilet right now. He's like, well, how long do you you reason that's going to take? I was like, no, I don't think you get it. I I cannot get up. And I, I don't know. This could be in my memory. I, I, I subtly remember him like putting a hand over the phone and me hearing yes in the background. <laughs> he was actually excited. He thought, wow, results. And he was, he was like, all right, we'll take today off. But man, if you, if you think we had a good workout the other day, wait till you come in over the weekend. 
I was like, so I didn't come back for like, I don't think like six weeks. I was terrified. And luckily I, next time I came back into the gym, you know, I tried a couple of things on my own and I found someone who was a little bit more suited to teaching me just, just the basics to get started. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with it for a few reasons. One exercise became a sanctuary for me. It was a place that I can go and lose myself. It was a place where I could be so present where I disappeared. And that was critical. It was also a place where I could focus at a certain outcome in the future. And by taking specific steps in the present, I could actually see that outcome unfolding. So there was this creative satisfaction. You know, it's kind of like it's such an egotistical comparison, but almost looking at Michelangelo's David. Um, I'm not Michelangelo. And trust me, when I was finished, I was not nearly as pretty as the David, but it was almost like that quote where they unveiled the David at the Palo della Signora in Italy and people in the audience gasped. And as it was written and recorded by Donatello, I believe, you know, somebody asked him, well, how is it that a mere mortal can create something that looks like it was constructed from the hands of the divine? Like Italians, we're so fucking dramatic. And <laughs> Michelangelo said, well, I never created the David. I saw an image of the David trapped within the marble. And my job was simply to remove everything. Yeah, nice. That was not the David. And I was like, <laughs> that's kind of how it felt for me to be able to, for the first time in my life, affect change. And then what started to happen, my body responded exceptionally well to exercise. Because I maybe it's because it became my whole life. I started reading everything I could find, although I don't think what I was reading had a lot of empirical basis to it. I was reading things like Muscle and Fiction magazine. And but still, I was I was acquiring information, accurate or inaccurate at that time. And I was working out and creating a result. And people stopped seeing me just as this weird kid who twitches a lot and spews vulgarities who has a deformed face. People actually started asking me questions because they were interested in the answer. Mm. So I realized that something that I can immerse myself in, something that gave me exhilaration and fulfillment could actually yield value for other people. And that gave me hope that even if everything else in my life sucks, and even if everything about me sucks, because I'm still feeling like that, to be honest, if there was one thing about me that didn't suck and one thing that I could be good at, and I could give that away with reckless abandon, I could be generous in that area to connect me to other people. I'm just going to focus on that. That's my way forward. Mm. So that's what exercise was to me. I mean, and then of course there's all these neurophysiological changes. There's these biochemical changes in the brain where I'm looking at different perspectives. I'm literally, you know, stimulating brain-derived neurotropic factors, and that's sprouting new neurons. I'm making new connections in my brain. So I'm becoming a different person through exercise, and that's expanding my scope of possibility. That's expanding the hardware I have to navigate through the world with. So that stuff's going on. But at that time, I was just like, I love this. And I never loved anything. The closest I got to loving something, you know, that wasn't a girl, was, you know, See, grabbing onto something that would lessen my pain, that would numb me, but truly loving something for its own sake to where I didn't want to be dumbed down. I wanted to be fully alive and awake 
to be able to experience that thing. And for me, that was in the gym, you know, even talking about it now, it's just, it, it, it's, it, it, I get these romanticized feelings about it. That was it. That's what exercise was for me. So it was, it was fulfilling on multiple levels and, and something that you could engage in really, as long as you could get up and walk, you could start feeling that same thing again, go up to the gym and do those things. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure there's a few other things that could have given me that same feeling. Like I was always interested in the arts, you know, like writing, writing gave me that same sensation. I, I I'm sure that the performing arts would have given me the same like sensation, but in the household I was growing up in, if I was doing any creative writing, that wasn't a school assignment. My stepfather would rip it to shreds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if he caught me, like God forbid, he caught me doing something like writing a poem or caught me saying something like I wanted to pursue acting, like he would beat me. Like he, mm-hmm. he would beat me to the point where it got bloody um, because that's not what men do and, and not in this house. And if you're going to, I'll kill you if you do that. So I was like, all right, um, maybe, maybe drama's not for me. Uh, maybe I'll just, I'll just go exercise a little bit because at least that he supported. Yeah. Because you know, it fit into his, into his box of acceptable activities. His view of the world, that was one of the few things in it that was going to be acceptable to him sort of thing. Um, you mentioned plateaus, uh, Bobby, and I think, Plateaus are an interesting sort of thing to, to talk about because I guess one of the, the key parts, especially in weight training, it, one of the key parts of it or the key things that, that you expect to encounter and you have to overcome is plateaus. And as you said earlier, Bobby, when you first jump into exercising, again, especially, I think it's especially weight training, you can make these gains really, really quickly. And you, you can go from not being able to do a push-up to being able to do 10 push-ups and seeing an improved physique quite quickly if you just stick to a basic routine, do the basic stuff and just do it again and again, you will start to look and feel bigger and healthier. But at some point, sooner rather than later, that sort of plateaus. And you find that if you just keep doing the same weights, the same way, the same routine, you stop developing or your, your kind of your physique stops developing and you have to work out ways to change that. So I'd be interested to kind of hear from you how you've sort of coached people through plateaus and if the things that you can apply to coaching people through a plateau inside the gym potentially are the same methods or process that you can coach people to exceed getting out of plateaus in life outside of the gym. Okay. So to, uh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, so you're not just talking about exercise induced plateaus. You're using an exercise induced plateau as a metaphor for coaching in life. Yep. Okay. Well, it's a lot of ways we can answer this. If you take a look at the work of Martini and, and Petraska, there are specific stages of any change that people are going through. There's five, um, and we could refer to that as a trans-theoretical model of change. Just to simplify it, the first phase is pre-contemplation, and pre-contemplators are kind of divided into two groups. They're divided into the people who it's like, I won't, 
You know, you might think I have a problem. You might not like my lifestyle and, and whatever it is that people look at and it doesn't fit their ideology and it's a problem. Or maybe the person really is causing harm to themselves and others, but they either are not ready to see it or, or they see it and they don't care. It's like, I won't change. You know, you, you don't like my excessive drinking. You know, I love staying out late all night at the pub, you know, coming home, urinating on my neighbor's door, thinking I live there, trying to get in. And then finally stumbling into my house and falling asleep on a hardwood floor. I love doing that. Or there's another form of pre-contemplator, which is coming from the perspective where I acknowledge there's a problem. But given the past evidence or the lack of evidence in the past or whatever reason, I don't feel like I can change. So it's like I can't. And it is a very hard stop. And those are two totally different types of people. There's different ways you need to handle both of them. Then you move into the next phase, which is contemplation, which is exactly what it, what it says, where I may, I might make a change. But at this point, I'm going through in my mind a decisional balance of pros and cons. Because if there, and this is an oversimplification, and there's more to it scientifically than this, and, and this is not meant to be insensitive, but rather simplistic. If there was a, if there was no benefit to a certain course of action, I probably wouldn't still be engaging in it. Mm -hmm. So even if there's disadvantages, there are advantages. So whenever you think about making a change, there's really two options. There's I'm either going to take action towards change or I'm not. But whether you look at change or not changing, there are advantages and disadvantages to both sides of that equation. And somebody in the pre, in the contemplation phase is weighing those out because each one of those is connected to a value. And if the value of the disadvantages to changing outweigh the advantages to changing, I'm probably not going to change. And if I do start changing, I'm probably not going to stick with whatever course of action that is for very long. A great analogy is these are, sorry to interrupt, Bobby. So the values in terms of someone's perceived values. So what, how they perceive the value of that change. Well, yeah. What, how, how that change connects to or threatens yep. a core value. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example, right? Let's say I value intimacy and love and, and security and all of that is created with the environment that I get when I spend time with my family. The issue is I'm on the road, I'm working 80 hours a week and I am ex absolutely destroyed. I, my business consumes most of my life mm -hmm. and whatever's left over, I try to give to my family because in my mind, they're the reason why I'm doing all of this in the first place. And then I start to exercise. And every time I exercise, let's say the only time I get to do that because I start work really early is in the evening. So I'm dedicating three hours a week to exercising. The problem is two of those hours were the only hours that I get to really spend time with my family mm. or maybe, you know, watch a Netflix film, have a glass of wine and have a bowl of something with the kids. And we all do that. And then we talk about it and that's it. I get to do that one time a week and now I don't get to do that. Mm. So you know, there's a, there's a lot of disadvantages for me not changing. I feel horrible. I feel like I'm languishing physically, emotionally, cognitively, in fact. But that value is at a lower level than my highest value, 
which is which I really get to engage in when I'm spending time with my family. So mm-hmm. I'm starting to work all that stuff out as a pre-contemplator. And there's preparation where I've come to the conclusion I will. You know, I've weighed all of the all the pros and the cons, and this this is a change I would like to make. I don't know exactly how, and I don't know exactly when, but I've decided I'm, I'm going to make changes. And then I start to engage in things like affective emotional states. I start to consider, wow, okay, so you know, if and when I get to, to this point where I look like this, I feel like this, what's life going to be different? What am I going to be able to do? What am I gonna, not going to have to do anymore that I hate because my physical conditioning and my state of mind has taken me beyond that? So it's almost like at this point, it's like method acting. There's this person I am right now that doesn't do things and, you know, makes excuses to not go to the gym. I'm not saying you're an excuse maker. It's just, it's something that you try to rationalize. And, you know, maybe I don't, you know, get up early and go for a run. Maybe I don't eat a certain way, but there's this version of me now that I'm committed to in the future. And I'm going to start stepping into some of these behaviors, becoming this version of myself and somehow transforming into that future, better version of myself. That's more aligned with what it is I want to do and who I want to be. So it goes from what do I want to, okay, who do I want to become? Because if you're going to do something you've never done before, you kind of have to become somebody you've never been before. And then the next stage is action. This is where I have already been engaged in doing what I need to do. I'm working on some type of physical activity program. You know, I've changed certain aspects of my nutrition and eating. Uh, Maybe I'm focusing a little bit more on quantity or or quality of sleep, maybe both. So I'm starting to take steps towards improving my well-being and performance in all areas in life. And then it's maintenance. Maintenance is the fifth one where it's like, I'm, this is this is not something I do. This is a reflection of who I am. Th- these are the people that are probably listening to this podcast. And when they're going to go away on holiday somewhere, they ring the hotel. And what's the first question they ask? Do you have a gym in the hotel? <laughs> well, what's it like? And that's that is, or they go online and they're trying to search for photos of the gym. And that is about 50% or more of the decision criteria where most people is like, I'm going on holiday because I want to be tripped out, sit my ties by the pool and pass out in the sunlight, wake up, sunburn, <laughs> go out, make an ass of myself and do the whole thing over and over again. But people like us, we're a little bit weird because exercise is not something. Well, I know I need to do this because you know how many people who exercise religiously um, really are doing it because they have a fitness competition coming up or they're going to run a marathon some, Mm. but not many other people are doing it because they can't help not doing it. It's who they are. And that's maintenance. Now, of course, there's always relapse. There's always recidivism. So when you get involved in that, there's different ways you need to engage people depending on where they are. And someone who is in contemplation, you know, it it might just to get started, it might sound like something, you know, if you were to do this, I'm not saying you should, but what would it, what would it look like? What would it feel like? So if you were someone who was consistently exercising, Hmm. what would be different about you three months from now? Hmm. And why is that important? And, and what do you not have right now? Like, like what is most frustrating to you right now? 
You know, what, what is causing you the most anxiety or anguish or what's one aspect of your life that you would want to get past, you would, you would want to resolve this because it's hurting you or the context of what you love. Maybe the career you love, or maybe the people you love, you're not getting to spend as much time. Maybe it's like, I am so tired of telling my three-year-old tomorrow, tomorrow, daddy will read you a story or mom will read you a story tomorrow. tomorrow. I'm going to run out of tomorrows. And this kid is going to be 11 and, and not, and not really interested. It's the opportunity. In, yeah, exactly. Mm. So what is that? And what do you really want most in the moment? And, and what do you think? A few, who do you need to become at some point in the future in order to have that? Now walk me backwards. What are some of the things? What are some of the things that you might consider doing? This this sounds like Bobby. I probably oversimplify it when I talk about plateaus you can reach in the gym and just changing things to overcome them. Like you can flick a finger and, and like, oh no, it's cool. I've changed up my schedule now. I'm killing it and I'm making the gains I want to. And or in the circumstances of life that those ways to get over those plateaus, those changes, they sound to me like they really, like some people might be able to navigate them themselves, but it sounds to me like an awful lot of people would need guidance or and or structure and or mentorship to go on that journey you just took me through. That sounds like there's a lot of commitment involved to, to navigate that change. Has that been your experience um, professionally or personally? You know, when we say commitment, I'm always asking, what do you mean by that? Commitment to what and from who? So I think everybody is already super committed. And that is not a popular narrative. Like my belief system is if somebody, you know, if somebody says, you know, I want a result, I don't know, give me a result, any result. A result like uh, getting five inch guns. Five inch guns? Okay, that's. Oh, that's not that big, is it? 20 inch it, guns. Okay, yeah, 25 inch guns. Watermelon that's, guns. I don't know. That's, that's almost probably as hard as getting 20 inch guns. Um, but <laughs> so it's like, it's a, it's a skeleton. Um, so <laughs> shut up, Bobby. Let, You're looking at my say, arms. <laughs> no, 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 I wasn't commenting on your arms. You've, sure, you've got just... lovely guns. Um, so let, let's say it's like, I want to I wanna get a little bit bigger, muscular hypertrophy, right? So there are things that you can do to sabotage that. And then there are sins of omission. There are things you cannot do. You know, I'm not, I'm going to miss days at the gym. I'm not going to stick to my program or my periodization strategy. Well, yeah, that, that'll stop you from getting that. And if you ask a lot of people, you know, why do people do that? Why do people say, well, I want this, but then they do things that are contrary to what it is they say they want. People say, well, pe people are full of shit or people are lazy, basically, or they're clearly just not committed, you know, or, or they're not willing to do the work. Like That's how many times, isn't you, it? Do, how many times do you hear that shit? It's mm -hmm. like people are wearing it on t-shirts now. I don't know why other people are invested and how much work others are not doing. doing that doesn't affect me. Like, unless they work for you, it's like, I, I don't get it. But what if, what if something else is going on? Cause if you're going to say this person's lazy, right? Like if you were going to say to me, well, Bobby's not very tall. It's true. 
You know, I'm not really like, like tragic. I'm not really short, but I'm not really tall, kind of on the shorter side. That's immutable. It's not like, well, if Bobby would just do the work and think tall thoughts, he would grow a few centimeters. No, I wouldn't because it is an immutable characteristic of who I am. So if you say someone's lazy and and you create a generalized distinction about that person showing up in the world of lazy, you would expect to see laziness in every aspect of their life. So the fact that they're able to retain you as a trainer, and I'm assuming that you're not really cheap because you're good at what you do. They have thousands in disposable or discretionary income, if you will. They're doing well in some other area, unless there's some trust fund baby, which (laughs) maybe, but if they've built their own business, they built their self up in their career to a point where they can even afford you in the first place. They've done something right because not everyone can. Well, I know someone's really committed. They'll sell their car and, you know, walk, you know, like 15 kilometers to train with you. All right. Whatever. Like, Whatever's like yeah, outliers. That's, that's, that's kind of an outlier example, right? But we use outlier examples as the fucking norm. Yeah, because that's true. It, it allows us to not find solutions and just live firmly in our ideology, damn the evidence or damn questioning our assumptions. Um, but it, it, let's say this person is accomplished in their business, or let's say like they're really engaged in their family. And or let's say they have a, a strong social network of friends. They're not lazy. This requires effort. It requires a lot of other characteristics beyond effort. I assume that they're committed, but they have another hidden commitment. They might not like, like in our last scenario, the person is, it's not that they're uncommitted when it comes to going to the gym. They have a hidden commitment of, if I have even a little bit of time, I'm going to spend it with my family. Because otherwise I feel like I'm betraying my family for my own needs. And I know that's not true on a psychological level, but on an emotional level, that's how I feel. And my highest value is spending time with my family. It's that hidden commitment. So you got to tease out what's the hidden commitment. Because beyond that, if you look further, there's an overriding assumption. And I'm not saying it's, it's a true assumption. Like not all of our beliefs are true. You know, some of them are based on interpretations of things that have happened to us. And depending on the context, depending on the emotional state we're in, depending on the level of trauma that we might have endured, depending on the frequency of that, a lot of times we arrive at erroneous conclusions and they're not so obvious like, you know, the flat earthers. Okay, well, that's fucking clearly insane. But <laughs> we're, we're talking about little assumptions where, you know, what might you assume? What might be a belief that you have about this? And that's kind of hard. A lot of times you'll get, well, I don't know. Okay. You know, if you were observing somebody else who was operating with, with this type of struggle where they wanted something, then they were doing things that stopped them from getting it. And then they, they had a hidden commitment, you know, to their family or their career. What, what might be an assumption they might hold? So getting someone to step back and disassociate and look at themselves from the third person might be a way forward. And and who knows? It could be an assumption like, you know, if I'm not there for my family, my kids will feel like I don't truly love them. And 
I'll have a strained relationship like I did with my dad. Okay. Well, what would it take to not make that true? Like, how do we reframe this? Because if, if we don't reframe it in a way that connects to the value that you feel you're violating, we're in trouble. So what happens, you know, in five years down the line when, or even one year where you're compounding this exhaustion, this level of anxiety, this level of fatigue, yep. what is your, like, when you look forward one, two, five years into the future, who is this person? Like, what, what is, what does he or she look like? What do they feel like? What's the expression they carry on their face? What's the energy and dynamism you bring to everything? especially your family, your spouse, your children. And what happens when, when you show up and you're depleted and you're anxious and you're frustrated all the time? What do those interactions look like? And those compounding interactions, what, what impression does that create? So your kids five years from now, what's their opinion of the relationship? Now, luckily that hasn't happened. Is this the, is, do you go to this level or have you gone to this level of depth, Bobby, with, with people in the fitness training context? Because this is much, much deeper than that in some regards. Like you don't need Bob or Jane who wants to develop her 20-inch guns. Do they need to be challenged to this extent to, to, uh, to step outside themselves, to understand their goals and their motivations in order to reach that objective? Or do you... Yeah. It totally depends. It is, is Jane someone who's in the action phase? So she's been exercising for six months before she met you. Or is Jane someone who's been exercising five years and basically she, she wants to now become a amateur competitive athlete and you have the technical expertise and knowledge together there because Jane does not want to talk about her value structure. Jane does not want to talk about the motivational drivers. Jane does not want to talk about how she overcame challenging situations in the past and what strength you can identify and leverage that she's there already. It's like, tell me what to do. If anything, she wants to be challenged by you working with her to create stretch goals that push her a little bit harder than she has pushed herself in the past. And then you put on your expert hat. And you tell, and then, te- cause I, I'm not a coach that says, we'll never tell someone what to do. There are times when people want to be told what to do. That is why they're hiring you. They're hiring you for your expertise and expertise comes with distinctions. And, and here's what I mean. This came up in, in a meeting with one of my staff today. Somebody said to me, what I really want is more knowledge. I said, knowledge or expertise. So what's the difference? <laughs> so, Okay. Knowledge is, I understand reductionist and functional anatomy. Like I could tell you, you know, what the um, posterior oblique subsystem is. You know, I could tell you what the deep longitudinal system is. And, you know, I, I could tell you what muscles and joint movements are involved, you know, as soon as your heel hits the ground and what happens at the fibula all the way up to the cervical spine. That's knowledge and that's great. It's a foundation. Expertise is where I have been doing this so long. I could take a look at a squat at three-dimensional movement at at the ankle foot complex. And I can look at what are going to be 
the, the predictable patterns of motion within the kinetic chain. And I could try two to three cues through different sensory representational systems, identify which one you respond to. And eventually I can give you one subtle cue that completely changes the level of engagement that you have with an exercise. That's or experience I, based. I, I, I can mitigate. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's where you have knowledge, but you can see things that that become evident to you. Distinctions. Where if you brought, you know, if we took your mom and brought her into the gym, right? We said, okay, that person's doing a squat. What do you see? She would probably say, well, I see someone. Who knows? Who knows how? Let's say that they've got a bar on their back. You know, not necessary, but let's just say that. They're, they're holding that weight behind their back and they're going low to the ground. Then they're coming back up. They're going low to the ground. That Well, technically she's right. But what she sees and what an expert trainer sees is two totally different things. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm, if I'm going on a hike through a precarious landscape, I need some, it, people are going to see the terrain the way they see the terrain. But I need someone who has the expertise to have the distinctions of, okay, you see that over there? That's quicksand. Don't step in that. That's an important (laughs) distinction. And when somebody is is further along in the trans-theoretical model of change, you can use your expert hat. When somebody is in the preparation phase or, or you encounter someone in the contemplation phase, information and knowing what to do is not going to affect behavior change Mm -hmm. not for very long it's not likely because if that was the case me and you could could end smoking globally all we would have to do is somehow get the word out that smoking is bad for you (laughs) we've been trying to do that for the last (laughs) no no but we would we would do it differently (laughs) we would create we would create listen to this an anti-smoking campaign where we would put a horrifying image about the consequences because <laughs> people, people are deterred sure in their bad behaviors by consequences, right? If you incarcerate more people, give them stiffer sentences, or if you show them the picture of what a lung looks like for somebody who's been smoking for 20 years, that's a deterrent. We know that because it's not fucking made a dent in how many people smoke. It doesn't work. <laughs> Yes, you need to go to people's values and their own intrinsic motivational drivers because that is what guides people. That's funny. And and you'll see, uh, we will have noticed over the years, Bobby, that advertising that they put on the packets or that they, the campaigns that they've run have shifted from pictures of lungs to pictures of families, you know, trying to, I guess, kind of adjust that, like, this is, my immediate is so maybe more of an emotional connection, like knowing that people have a commitment to their family who are smokers, know that it's not just the health benefit, health negatives to themselves. They're in a way they're smoking and affecting their family, which could perhaps be a stronger behavioral change driver. Would that be correct? I think, you know what I, with, without seeing data, I would say my guess would be yes. Mm. Step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if you look at Gemma Calvert at the University of Warwick in, um, in the UK, you know, she, she did some interesting research on smokers. And what she found is heightened activity 
in, in the ventral striatum, when they were shown anti-smoking images in an, um, M- uh, an fMRI, I'm like, I'm on a lot of prescription meds <laughs> since the surgery. Excuse me. <laughs> You're doing very well. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a little bit like all over the place, but, um, and, and relatively no activity in the amygdala. And what that meant was because these people all self-reported that smoking ads, anti-smoking campaigns are highly effective. It makes them feel afraid of the consequences or it makes them feel angry at themselves for engaging in smoking. But if that were true, you would see upregulation in the amygdala. She didn't. Um, so like that, a, a physical result, yeah, like, you know, if yeah, that you, thing you, sparks, you, it you, has, you, co- yeah. you, you would see greater utilization and activity in the amygdala. Mm, interesting. But they didn't. That's not what the researchers saw. But that was not what was most surprising. What was most surprising is the ventral striatum. It's like that is involved in the, that's a structure, a critical structure in the reward pathway, but more specifically around anticipation. So it actually increased their craving for a cigarette. (laughs) So they were saying on, on one level, oh, wow, that's effective. But what was really going on in the brain, the main message was smoke. Oh, Mm. yeah. You know what? I, I could fan. I could yeah, speaking fan. of which, right wouldn't mind, Siggy. Yeah, <laughs> oh, exactly. <God. laughs> so it, it's information isn't it, isn't the gold standard that we think it is. It does go back to what are your values, mm-hmm. and, and or what are your basic human needs? You know, like like if somebody's constantly under threat, and or they're reliving. You know, a level of trauma. They had something really bad happen to them. And that cigarette is their escapism. It's a way for them to, for five minutes, just completely detach from the world and, and release, you know, um, L-dopa, which precursor to dopamine and kind of feel good, you know, and, and for, for a certain amount of money that's relatively within most people's reach, I have like 20 of my best mates that can be there for me in those times, it, it comes down to more than just information. Everybody knows that what they're doing is damaging. Mm, it's a matter remember, of why are they doing it? I remember the, the I used to smoke in my twenties. Uh, I still crave cigarettes now if I've had a few drinks. Love, mm. love the thought of a smoke. But the hardest, it took me so many cracks at it to, to quit smoking. And I'm, I'm a pretty well self-motivated, self uh yeah, self-motivated sort of person. Like I have driven myself to launch businesses and do all these exercise things and la, la, la. It took many cracks to get rid of it. And the one that the, the hardest part of it to totally stamp out was the Friday afternoon having a drink and a smoke. Like I could not smoke the whole week quite happily. I got to that point. But that di- being able to disassociate the weekend from a victory cigarette on a Friday afternoon, that took like months and months and months and months before I could overcome that last sort of little barrier because of the positive association mm. I'd built. Well, and, and that's the key words right there, positive association. There's somebody who you are or, or something maybe you're reliving when you're smoking that cigarette. And I don't want to, <laughs> you know, I don't want to pick on cigarettes because I'm not in the business of villainizing people. Unless what you're doing is causing you imminent danger 
um, and or you're going to hurt somebody else. I tend not to villainize stuff. Um, I don't think it's useful. And who the fuck am I anyway? Um, <laughs> but if if the best times in your life were those memories of that cigarette at that particular time in that particular environment, and especially if there were certain people attached to that. And maybe if many other times during the week, there were painful or unpleasant associations, and that was in contrast to it. Yeah, you're, you're going to link up those activities, that environment, those people, mm. you know, like, like, like people who, you know, some of their, some of the best memories, like they grew up in a society where, you know, it, it, it's not looked down upon to take your kid to the pub. You know, I mean, of course, you're not going to you're not going to like let them have like a pint of lager, you know, Shandy, their kid. Um, but 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 that's that's a normal environment for them. And maybe some of the happiest times, you know, when you know that they got to hang out with Auntie Sally or, or whatever and their uncle. It's like that pub is going to be an anchor. So it's like, what is that doing? What's the value that's represented? What is and if that's not serving you anymore, if you like that environment, so so be it. That's. Yeah, that's a, that can be a great environment for people if that's no longer conducive with what it is you want mm. what are some other ways you can still serve those values or you can still get your basic human needs met I get it i get it that's really interesting i remember being in ireland and seeing um kids of all ages in the pub and that definitely wouldn't be okay in australia it probably was in the 80s but not so much now and I hadn't really ever thought about, I always knew in the back of my mind, I was like, mm, that seems strange to me, but I guess there's not anything inherently wrong with it per se, but I can kind of see how if you, if you grew up in the pub where the pub was the community and you hang out with the family in the pub, there is a, a risk, potentially a greater risk of creating this like negative perception that everything good happens when I go to the pub because my whole yeah. childhood's been there. God, I've, I've had, I've, I've had that perception. Um, <laughs> you know, I want to, I want to be able to answer the question. Do I have your permission to answer it a little bit? Like I go back into it from a coaching perspective, because you were using it as a metaphor. Cause I, I used to back when I was with, you know, national Academy of sports medicine, when I was with, um, I'm a co-founder of a company PTA global that was actually recently purchased by NASM. Interesting. And congrats. Uh, no, I, I had nothing to do with it by that, oh, crap. By that point. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> congratulations are in order, just not to me. So, um, or, or, and when I used to work as, you know, head of training for different health club chains, I was deep into biomechanics, functional anatomy, neurophys, but I have not been for about six years like just not diving into it whatsoever because it's just not my area. It's not my thing. So there's probably people out there to be fair, that can speak to that far better than I can at this point in time. But when you, when you're taking a look at moving forward um, and, and overcoming plateaus, I think that it's got to be autonomous. People do things for their own reasons. Um, if you take a look at the research on self-determination, by DC and Ryan, you know, there are basically three elements to intrinsic motivation and, and it can be found in, in an acronym, ARC, an arc of motivation, if you will. And it's autonomy. Why is this important to you for the reasons that it's important to you and for the values that it supports? Two is relatedness. You can look at this two ways, you know, um, nobody cares how much, you know, until they know how much you care. 
So if you're coaching somebody, what is the foundation of that relationship? What's the engagement, the rapport, the level of safety, the belief you have that is conspicuously expressed? So holding that space, my belief is greater than your doubt. The other side of relatedness is, again, how related is what they're doing to what it is that's most important to them? Mm-hmm. And then there's their C. And this, this one is kind of surprising to people. It's competence. You know, one factor of intrinsic motivation is continually pursuing mastery and taking yourself to the outer edge of your current level of proficiency or competence and expanding that circle of influence or or raising that ceiling of mastery, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when people are, one of the things that tells you whether or not you're pursuing something that is your own value or you're pursuing a value that someone else has imposed upon you is expecting of you is when you're pursuing something that is truly an intrinsic value, you want to get better at it. You're willing to struggle for it. You're willing to suffer for it. As a matter of fact, suffering does not cause distress. It's kind of invigorating. Yes. It's frustrating, but exhilarating kind of at the same time. Like if you, if if you are really in love with, I don't know, table tennis. Yeah. Muay Thai Thai is a great example, right? Like a a combat sport where you know, you're going and you need to scare the shit out of yourself, but the growth through it is addictive and you're willing to put yourself into that compromised position to, to gain, to try and increase that level of mastery. Maybe. Well, let me ask you a question. (laughs) So if, if you were, if you had a sparring partner with Muay Thai, would you want to work with someone who's just been practicing for a couple of weeks? They're like absolutely brand new. Would that be like a fun sparring session for you? Look, the only reason I would, would welcome that is, is in the, in the essence of contribution and trying nope, to help don't, them to get better. But for me personally, moral, it's not. Yeah, don't moralize it. Would yeah. that be like, wow, I cannot wait, you yeah. know, to get into the ring with this novice. Yeah, it's never it's never as good an experience as you uh, sparring with someone who is on an equal level or slightly above footing to yep. you. That's that's where it's at. Someone who's at an you wouldn't want to get into to the to the ring with a world Muay Thai champion because no, you're not no. going to learn it. There's not that's not going to be exhilarating. They are going to kick the living shit out of you. Mm-hmm. You want to get into the ring with someone who is at your level, but just a little bit better. Yeah. So you have something to strive for and mm-hmm. it forces you to draw out the best effort. That's mm-hmm. how, you know, there's a real value and a love around that. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that, and that's the final element. So what point was I even making? I don't know. God, I like good it, thing. Though. The meds are working. So yeah. Intrinsic motivation is based on an arc. It's based on autonomy. It's based on relatedness, the both, explanations that and it's based on the the pursuit of increasing competence the c so okay so we were talking about plateaus i I think the key to that is reflection people don't reflect as much as i think there would be value in reflecting and you know we talk about a society of winning and succeeding it's kind of failure that really helps us overcome those plateaus. Mm, agreed. You know, and, and, and it's kind of like, that's what engages us. 
Like, so let's say you were learning archery and what you really wanted was a bullseye, right? That that's the goal you're aiming for, but you, you hit it on the target, but it's off center. It's not a bullseye at all. At that point, you have to evaluate the outcome you wanted versus the outcome you got. So in coaching sport, we could refer to this as knowledge of results versus knowledge of performance. That frustration helps focus you. It helps you to release more more epinephrine. Now you have to course correct and figure out, okay, why did I miss? And you have to adjust and re-aim. And every time that you aim and you let go of that arrow, you determine where you wanted to hit versus where it actually hit. You make micro modifications again, mm-hmm. again, again, until eventually you get that bullseye. Mm-hmm. So it's that reflection and examination of what didn't work out the way you wanted it to. Not when you hit the bullseye that you're actually growing, you know, you're getting myelinization, which is increasing the speed and efficiency in which your neurons can communicate with one another in the brain, where you start to solidify and hardwire the neural networks that are connected to that specific skill. So it's, it's like, what did I want to have happen and look back and go, okay, now what was the best thing that occurred last week? I mean, we could start out with what was my biggest challenge, right? Where did I miss the mark? I don't like to start there because then we tend to get down into a myopic rabbit hole of Mm. problem, solution, problem, solution, where there's nothing wrong with that. It's useful. But I'd like to start with what went particularly well, because that tends to, if you look at it like a visual field, problem tends to narrow your visual field and deepen it, where what went really well tends to allow you to step back and expand and see the elements and the resources within your periphery that are useful, but you otherwise might miss them. So what went particularly well and why, who, who was around, you know, what strengths did you use? What were the behaviors? Did you, you know, it, it, did you do meal prep? I'm not trying to bore anyone, but <laughs> did you take time the night before to kind of like pack your food to take to the office? And, you know, even though an unexpected meeting came up when you went into the meeting, you weren't hungry and unfocused because you had your food packed with you. So you didn't reach for the corporate donuts that are like kind of like brought in, you know, every single meeting to where, wow, you're feeling great for 10 minutes and now lights out. So was that, (laughs) you know, what did you run into? Like all those those connecting, all those dots that led to the process that led to the result and then kind of deconstructing that and replicating that for future successes. Sort of. Yeah. Cause you could look at the contrast between what was my worst day. Yeah. Cause we either look at things as success or failure. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, I totally blew my diet over lunch. I totally <laughs> stuffed it up. You've got like what? 20 meals in a week, more than that, depend more or less one, one lunch. You've stuffed it, it up focuses the entire your, yeah. day. Yeah. It, 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 <clears throat> it, it, it's kind of like your kid comes home from school they got an A in every class. They got like a C in one. Like, are they a C student now? Like that doesn't make it, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. What was your worst day? Now, tell me about your best day where things were challenging. Things weren't easy. It was just as chaotic yet. 
you had the greatest level of success because you're going to learn something from evaluating both of those perspectives. Yeah. Although they're, they're a little bit polarized. And what percent of success would you give yourself? So given everything, it's saying, well, I, I succeeded because I got it exactly right or I failed because I got it less than perfect. That's not very useful. You can make an argument. It's not useful on either end. But if you say, well, I think I was about 60% successful. What made it 60%? You know, what, again, what were the tools? What were the resources? Who was around you? What was the environment? What, what were the strengths that you possess that are evident in that success? And what does 65% success or 70% success look like? Now work towards expanding that. It's really, it's really interesting. I think that that idea of evaluation and including it in day-to-day processes, whether they're or even week-to-week processes, just making sure it's getting some love and that we're including an evaluation element in our whatever our plans are. I think that's really, really valuable because I feel like we can easily overlook that. And I definitely have been guilty of just moving to the next thing, the next horizon, always looking at the next hill and not spending that time to glean those really, really, really valuable insights that you really could have taken from the work that you did and applied them to doing even better work by being tempted to just do the next thing that's on the list, you know? I think being honest with yourself about where you are. Like, what are you working towards and where am I today? Like, what is the best use of my time given what I want and given where I'm at mentally, physically, emotionally, like I can give you, yeah, all that sort of stuff. I can give you an example for me being a total idiot. So (laughs) for many years I taught, you know, exercise biomechanics. And even though I wasn't teaching it, you know, I've always been meticulous in the way I trained. And then something in my like mid, like, like just as I was starting to get towards my mid forties, something just snapped in me. I don't know what happened, but I got this mentality where I just wanted to lift heavier and have, now this is not, this is not a great mentality to have, like, as you're getting into your mid forties and it's like, there's nothing wrong with lifting heavy. But there's a progression up to that. Mm-hmm. And, and me, I would overtrain. So I would come back into the gym before I was rested. But being in the gym, again, was so important to me. And because there was a lot of things going on, that was, again, my sanctuary. But I wasn't very in tune with myself. So I, would, I got off the road um, and I had not fully recovered. And I can't sleep on planes. So I'm a little Same. bit sleep deprived. Never have slept on a plane ever. Oh, it's horrible. And it doesn't even matter doesn't even matter like, oh, if you're in like business class or whatever. Nah, it's nah. like, I, I, I just cannot sleep when I'm up in the I'm air. The same. On the runway, I'm out. But like <laughs> once we get up in the air, I can't sleep. So I had not recovered. And it was just one of those, I'm just going to go in the gym. And even though I'm really tired right now, and I was even walking into the gym saying, I should probably just have a light day. I, I don't have it. And then no sooner did I say that, I was like, nah, just go for it today. <laughs> like really stupid. Max and lift, then, buddy. <laughs> uh, I was, but, but it was it was like, I was in one of these shitty gyms. Like, you know, these gyms that get rid of all the space for you to actually move and they load it up with selectorized equipment. That's pretty much every gym in Australia these days. Uh, it was horrible. So uh, everything's taken. 
And there's one piece of equipment that is this fixed linear path of motion on like a chest press, which not ideal for a lot of reasons. Again, I'm not going to villainize it, but there's a, like when you're on, when you're on an apparatus like that, there's a lot of considerations when you're using it. And I just hadn't been on a piece of equipment like that in over 20 years. And I was just like, wow, even though I'm tired, I feel so strong and just logic. What I wound up detaching my left pec <laughs> from my rib, from my humerus. I mean, full grade three detachment. Wow. Um, didn't even go to hospital like a normal person because I had to be in Germany. So just put kinesio tape on it really tight. That'll fix it. Ooh. All right. That, that should be good for the flight. And it, it, it's like, I, I went to a couple of physios and they were talking about muscle imbalances. And then I went to, you know, they, they were talking about the type of equipment I was on, the load. And then I, I went to a friend of mine and he, he was doing some physio on me. But he also studies neuroscience quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, you want, me to, you want me to share with you my insight as to why this happened? He's like, yeah, take everything everyone's saying. And yep, okay, you weren't recovered. You were overtraining. You know, you're an idiot. We got to factor that in. Um, <laughs> you know, you know some so, so muscle imbalances, you know, faulty orthokinematics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was going on in your head? two minutes before you did this exercise, what was your emotional state? And me, I was fucking pissed off because I went to the gym when it should have been relatively empty and it was just packed. I was like, there's no, there's no space that I, I can't get a dumbbell or a barbell. I can't get a kettlebell. I can't get anything. That's not a machine. And it was just irritating me. And like, that's how you approach life. You're like, Oh fuck this. And you just impulsively made a decision as like, I'm going to do this as hard as I can. You didn't reflect on where you were at in the moment and, and, and stop and say, okay, where am I at right now? And ask yourself a better question. Cause when you ask yourself a question, not even a really good question, it requires analysis. So you upregulate your prefrontal lobes. So if you're about to do something stupid, questions are an expeditious um, and relatively effective way of kind of like getting yourself out of that state and starting to, you know, use your, use your executive centers, of your brain. It's like, you didn't do any of that. And because of that, you took all of these critical factors and, and brought them. This was the tipping point. I was like, ah, oh, you know what? That makes a hell of a lot of sense. Mm. I knew better than what I was doing, but I couldn't access what I knew because I wasn't reflecting and acknowledging what state I was in at the moment. And after that, I learned my lesson and I became a much better and thoughtful individual. It just took That's a bullshit. Just took no, ripping, I didn't, I didn't do any of that, off. <laughs> I did for a month. For a month, I was very confident. Then I, back I, went from, I went to being irrational and like impulsive. <laughs> Bobby, I want to just loop back before I let you go. Uh, I know we've we've come, taken up a little bit more time than I'd planned to, but I, I feel that we could really cover a lot more topics, but I, there's one that I want to cover off because I think it's important. I brought it up at the start, which is this sort of power of contribution and the, your, the, the earlier discussion about that through helping others, you were in fact helping yourself. And I think 
I want to bring that up because as part of the doing epic stuff mission, which is really to get more people pursuing their own epic stuff. Um, I think it's important to kind of highlight ways that we can sort of find ways to reconnect with our passions and our interests and our purpose and things like that. And I've had several guests on this podcast who have given me testimonials about not being sure what to do in their business or in their life. And then having switched gears to just focusing on contribution of others and then finding that special thing, which, which became their spark, which led to an entrepreneurial journey or a new passion project or that sort of thing. So I guess what I want to know from, from you and your experiences, I mean, cause if I was, if it was an outsider looking in on the Bobby life, a large part of your life has been contributing because you are in effect a coach and a, and a trainer or a master of coaching and training at this point. So I guess my question to you is, is contribution from your perspective, one of the kind of universal keys to solving pretty much any problem? Well, I'm not going to be presumptuous to say that I understand what one of the universal keys to solving anything would be. But what I can say is in my life, that was the single most significant aspect. So a lot of times when people bring me on interviews like this, they'll ask me a question littered with presuppositions. And it's almost <laughs> like the, the expectation of how they want me to answer is built into the question. Mm -hmm. Like, so how did you use discipline and strength to overcome a very challenge? Nope. It wasn't any of that. It was none of that. Like, like people who are, who go through the, and, and it is, it is horrific. I'm not going to downplay it. But people who go through the shit I went through in any one area and they don't end up where I am. What? They were fucking weak and I'm strong. Oh, they, 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 they were they were negative and 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 they didn't take responsibility. And I took tons of responsibility. And I was so fucking positive. That is a really convenient and very often erroneous assessment of what actually happened. Mm. What happened was I was so desperate to not feel the way I was feeling and not be me that I focused 100% outside of myself or as much outside of myself as I could. And I was working in the gym. And a lot of times you don't see people who are clinically obese coming into the gym. It's a terrifying environment for them, understandably. But in our gym that I got started, you saw people like this <clears throat> because we were very communal and people within the neighborhood would have a family member and they would bring them in and they would bring them to me. And I didn't know what it was like to be obese. I, I had no clue. But here's what I did know. I knew what it was like to have little kids take a look at my face and hide behind their mother and start to cry and scream as if they just saw a monster because to them, that's what I was. And, and I knew what it was like to want to change and not be there more than anything in the world, but not really know how. Mm. So for me, it was so important. If I can use anything, comfort, empathy, knowledge, compassion, belief, to help somebody start to get hope that they can move from where they are to where they want to be, that they, that they can identify what it is they want in the future and build a bridge 
that one day will make that future their current reality, I would do it. And I would sit with somebody and I would invest in them. And, and I, I don't know, it, it, it wasn't necessarily generosity. It was, that was a reprieve from being me. By focusing on helping them, I didn't have enough energy to look back on myself in that moment. So it, it definitely alleviated a lot of suffering. You know, I didn't know, you know, I, I, I didn't know what it must've felt like to say that you, you're going to keep doing the same thing over and over and you keep falling on your face and experiencing recidivism in your training. Because to me, training was like everything. Like if I said, I'm going to be in the gym, I'm going to be in the gym. And if I wasn't in the gym, something seriously happened. And the next day, I was going to move like heaven and earth to get there because it was important to me. But I do know what it's like being in a situation where I'm being beaten and tortured to, to life threatening degrees where like people go, Oh, you know, when you were like five years old, what did you want to be? For me, I wanted to be six. Hmm. That's what I wanted to be when I was five. And I watched my adopted mother, I don't know my biological parents, but I watched my adopted mother who in her defense is developmentally disabled, but I watched her stay in that situation. And if she didn't stay in that situation, my life would be probably different in that respect, but it wasn't because she did. And it's like, why? Like, why did she do that? You know, it's like, okay, because she didn't have certain tools. And it was, it, maybe it was beyond her ability. And like, so when I see somebody engaging in repetitive behaviors, I wasn't so quick to say, well, you're doing this because and arriving at a conclusion as to why they behave the way they do or why they're not behaving the way I think they should and attaching a negative connotation to that. So it made me a little bit more patient and it made me a bit more curious so I would want to work with those people. So there was, if you looked at every stage of my life, like, like the Tourette's, you know, I, I'm, I was very unusual. Like I'm the guy who, you know, in, in a place as crowded as New York city, I was always able to get a seat, you know, if the, if the train wasn't completely packed because people would just move over because, you know, I'm like twitching and barking which even in New York city, it's kind of uncomfortable. And we think we've seen everything. So if I saw someone who was a little bit different or odd, that created an attraction to that person. I'm not talking about physical attraction. I'm talking about an empathetic form of connection rather than repulsion. So for me, I was looking at all the things that caused me pain and saying, okay, where are other people, maybe not in the same situation, but experiencing similar areas of pain and how can I help them alleviate some of that? And for me, that helping them find their way forward was my way forward. Mm. Beautifully said, Bobby. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And I also really appreciate you just taking the time today. We hadn't met prior to this. And uh, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, I appreciate it every time I get on this podcast and get to speak to people like yourself who are so willing to share and I think you probably don't even realize the, the potential uh, positive effect of just, of just being open, open and sharing stories like you have because they're, 
they're exposing people to new perspectives and and i think there's a huge amount of value in that so thank you very much for being on the podcast today i'm i'm really happy that you wanted to invite me to come and <laughs> hang out and chat a bit so thank you mate. I've, i had like a list i've got like a list of like maybe 10 more topics i wanted to touch on we touched on two not even like one or two so i'd love to get you back on down the track bobby if you'd like to well, you had, we were discussing, um, my answer to that is yes. And we were discussing why I became a speaker. Now, you know, I'm so fucking long winded. Like what <laughs> option did I have? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. You can find all the latest happenings on the website, doingepicstuff.com or our Instagram, Instagram forward slash doing epic stuff. We out.